precious few people have been set free from the shackles of sinful self-promotion. I, me, mine, are indigenous words to our fallen hearts. They're most natural for human beings like you and for me, all others who've been born to utter. And they're typically among the very first words, as all parents know, that any child intelligibly speaks. As we grow, we don't grow out of our depravity just by virtue of adding years to our life. Oftentimes, we actually become more successful in concealing our pride. We just get more sophisticated in our sinfulness as our vocabulary grows. But unless self is replaced with Christ, the damning consequences of our depravity remain. Pride is spiritual suicide. True conversion to Christ. Let me say it again. True conversion to Christ radically reorients the orbit of our soul. When someone is given to Jesus, parentheses, the key question is not have you given your life to Christ? The key question is has the Father given your life to His Son? When someone is given to Jesus by the Father as a reward of the Son's sufferings, those who are made to be trophies of the grace of Jesus have a distinct cross-shaped mold inside their character. That is, Christ-centeredness in everything. If you don't want Jesus first, that does not mean in the list of one, two, three, or down to ten or ten thousand. If you don't want Jesus first in everything, first in your heart, first in your marriage, first in your work, first in all your relationships, preeminent in all things, then it's not the Jesus of the Bible that you want. Christocentricity becomes the great joy of Christians who are progressively being transformed into Christ's image. At the end of the day, our heart has two options. Everybody at root is either anthropocentric or Christocentric, either man-centered or Christ-centered. Today's sermon in one sentence would sound something like this. The Lord approves and commends only those whose boast is in Christ alone. With that in mind, I invite you to our sermon text. In our 2 Corinthians series, we're in chapter 10. We're picking up in verse 12. 
We'll go through the end of the chapter, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation, Hear the word of the living God. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure. But within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure, to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the Gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by You. So as to preach the Gospel even to the regions beyond You. And not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another, but He who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not He who commends Himself that is approved, but He whom the Lord commends. Would you join me one more time at the throne of grace as we seek God's face for help? Father, in Jesus' name, we ask not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to Your name give glory. Again, we ask this boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is about boasting. But boasting is the symptom. What we boast in is a symptom of our heart. What's in the heart comes out of the mouth. And this text reveals, as I've mentioned, two diametrically opposed expressions of boasting. They cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. The diametrical opposition in the text is either boasting in self or boasting in Christ. Verse 12, boasting in self. Verse 12 to 18, boasting in Christ. First, the anti-gospel. The against the gospel boast. Verse 12, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Our first point is self-centered boasting. As we've seen now for two years, the situation in the church at Corinth, our 1 Corinthians series and now our 2 Corinthians series, The sinful situation in the church at Corinth was multifaceted. The enemy had crept in, gained a foothold, and there were all sorts of challenges. As we now know from our journey into this thus far in uh, 2 Corinthians, the vast majority of the church had repented. Paul had written to them, in addition to 1 Corinthians, his tearful letter, calling them 
to repentance. But not only were there multifaceted sinful situations in the church at Corinth, which Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians with the Gospel every single time, and in his tearful letter with Gospel repentance as the aim, but their sinful situations were actually exacerbated by a network of outside ministers who crept into the church in order to promote themselves. As prideful people do, these people stepped on other people to try to make themselves feel bigger. That's what prideful people do. They use themselves, in addition to stepping on Paul, they use themselves as their own standard of measure. After suggesting to the church substantial reasons that the Corinthians ought to be suspicious about the Apostle Paul's life and his ministry, these outside ministers then pointed to their own greatness. Sadly, it appears that some in the church bought it. The ultimate danger though, in Paul's mind, was not them losing Paul. Paul's concern was that they were losing Paul's Gospel. It's vitally important to realize that in response to the situation I just described, these boastful ministers and the church buying it, it's vitally important to realize that Paul does not altogether rebuke boasting. Rather, he rebukes a certain type of boasting. Improper boasting. That is, as I've mentioned for our first point, self-centered boasting. These outsiders' boast was illegitimate because of its standard of measure. Because of the rules that guided their boasting. Verse 12, they commend themselves. But if you look at the end of the passage, verse 18, what really matters is those whom the Lord commends. Back to verse 12, they measure themselves by themselves, compare themselves with themselves. Their measuring stick, put simply, was self. Which is a sure recipe for empty conceit. A conceitedness that's hollow on the inside. Proud of yourself with no reason to be proud. That's empty conceit. What we learn from the end of verse 12 is that when self is the standard by which we measure ourselves, we find out that this is what it means to live as one without understanding. The end of verse 12. You don't even know why you're alive. You don't even know the purpose for which you exist. Prideful people live out of compliance with the core reason God created us. They don't understand anything. You will think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Romans 12.3 And you will be filled even with not just general pride, but spiritual pride. As long as self is your measuring line for appraisal. The Lord, the real One, the only true One, the only true God who sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, the real God is opposed 
to proud people. He's not indifferent to pride. He has a visceral, inward repulsion against all human pride. Like oil and water, prideful people might presume to walk in fellowship with God. But they're not under grace They're under delusion. Like oil and water, prideful men cannot have communion with Christ. According to the Lord of glory, in His most prolific single verse self-description in the whole Bible, He makes His abode in only two places. Two spheres. Isaiah 57.15, God is at home. He is comfortable. He is Himself. He makes Himself known in a high and holy place. And exclusively one other location. With those who are lowly and contrite of spirit. As the old saying goes, grace runs downhill. God's grace flows toward those and only those who reject, repent from me-centeredness and humble ourselves in a happy awareness of our, may I say it with help, oh God, desperate need for Jesus. He's not your bonus. He's not your added extra. It would not be a matter of minimal help if Jesus were added to your already relatively complete life. Paul's opponents in Corinth were full of spiritual pride. It is the worst stench in God's nostrils. Through the prophet Isaiah, God announced to the religiously proud that He would prefer that they stop coming to church. He tells such people that He hates their worship. In Isaiah chapter 1, He not suggests, but commands such people to stop bringing to Him their sacrifices. What a shocking, shocking way for God to talk to His people. But it's only shocking. It is only shocking insofar as we miss the reason God would say such a thing. The reason God would say such a thing is the exact same reason that any parent among us would respond the same way if someone kept telling us how much they love us while they meanwhile abuse our children. The reason God hates spiritual pride and so-called worship that rises from it is because such people are using Jesus for self-promotion rather than worshiping Jesus with gospel gladness. The question that really cuts to the heart of the opponents of Paul in Corinth, and let's just apply it to us in this 
moment now, the question that really cuts to the heart of our devotion, a question that will expose the deepest heart within us of the goal of our devotion to the Lord, what is our telos? What is the end? What is the aim? What is the ultimate reason that we do church, if you will? The folks who crept into Corinth were using Jesus for selfish gain. And God did not mince words in the book of Hebrews when He declared what He would do with such people who trample beneath their feet the blood of His Son. To tell God you love Him and use and abuse His Son is the worst of crimes. What I'm saying is that motives matter. Measure yourself by yourself. Compare yourself with yourself is to live without understanding. Verse 12. It is a self-centered boast and it is abhorrent to the heart of God. In true conversion, God renovates you from the inside out. He starts His work with your wanter. He goes inside the mechanisms on the inside of your desires and He recalibrates every part of what you desire to be focused on what He focuses on. The reflection of His glory by the power of the Spirit in the person of His Son. What you and I ultimately want in our relationship with God is in large part the, the litmus test. Not A, I mean in large part tied for first for the litmus test of true conversion. It's what Paul means in this same book a couple of chapters down the road in chapter 13 about examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Paris Reedhead put it so powerfully. The deification of man was born in hell. And the glorification of God was born in heaven. When the Gospel of Jesus Christ so penetrates your heart as happened to the Jesus-hating Saul of Tarsus, who went on to write this letter, after he encountered the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road, every other day of his life after that encounter became what Pastor Rick commonly refers to as a ceremony. Every morning. A ceremony of crucifixion and a ceremony of coronation. Crucify self, crown Christ as King. Crucify self, crown Christ as King. And it's not once done, forever accomplished. It is die daily. Every single morning, we are to do Galatians chapter 5. Did you do it today? Crucify yourself with all those passions and desires that are in opposition to the glory of Christ. Crown Him as King on the throne of your life. These super apostles who came into Corinth found reason for boasting for multiple reasons. And on the surface, they all look good. Their own spiritual experiences, their personal spiritual giftings, their personal abilities. 
Most likely, their oratory skill. Stylistically, they could outpreach just about anybody. Although they were eloquent, no doubt mesmerizing, the problem is that when it came to the subject of all subjects, when it came to the all-surpassing beauty of Christ, and how His Gospel love strips us of pride and fills us with the grace to offer our body as a living sacrifice. There's your daily death. As our spiritual service of worship. They had nothing to say. I'm not asking if you're called to be a preacher or have preached or plan to preach. I'm asking... Can you sustain a prolonged conversation about the all-surpassing beauty and sufficiency of the Lord of glory? When it came time to talk about themselves, these people were a broken record. Sadly, some in the church who remained unrepentant were hypnotized by it. Because when somebody tells you what you want to hear and wraps it in a package that is labeled with Jesus' name, it's so easy to use Jesus for self-centered purposes. These guys look so shiny and so well put together on the outside. They came in with their power suits and their briefcases and their big presentations. They held extended meetings. The church couldn't wait to get to the church house every time the lights were on. But what the church didn't realize was that what looked good on the shelf was particle board furniture on the inside. The packaging looked great, but the contents were toxic to their spiritual health. Later in the text, we see from the inferences Paul makes about how he operated under the light of the Gospel for the glory of God, that these people, unlike Paul, pridefully boasted in the labors of other men as if they accomplished the work. Feels like we live in that day. Partisan politics. I'm not talking about in Washington. I'm talking about with our favorite spiritual pundit. As if we're the people doing the work. And we align ourselves just like I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus. And the whole thing is opposed to the heart of Christ. Here's the principle from our first point. When self is the standard of your measure, then you will very easily, very readily, very quickly and very often find opportunities to boast. Because there's always going to be somebody that you can find to consider yourself better than at something or in some way or in some category. But it's a hollow boast. It's an empty boast. Prideful boasting does something to you, not just from you. Prideful boasting makes you more thirsty every time you drink from its fountain. It parches you. That's why I'm saying it's spiritual suicide. Pride kills you. As C.S. Lewis said, pride is, quote, spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment, and it doesn't even make common sense. The reason this matter was of such urgency for Paul is not because he thought he was better than the naysayers. 
but because the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the exact opposite ethic that these so-called spiritual leaders employed. We move to our second point. I'm not telling you do better. I'm telling you look at Jesus. Instead of self-promotion, The only one who ever had every reason to promote himself. The only person who should have been a megalomaniac, me monster, emptied himself. The only one who should have pointed his holy, not depraved finger at every one of his fellow men from the king down to the peasant and demanded that they do homage at His feet. Humbled Himself. Walked in self-sacrificing obedience to the Father. Philippians 2 was then exalted to the highest place and given the most excellent name after His obedience to the cross death. The only proper application Paul is saying to such Gospel love is to have your heart melt in the presence of this Jesus. Do you know how to get rid of pride? Not by getting rid of pride. Just like you worship your way into sin, you got to worship your way out of it. You can't look at nothing to become morally neutral. God didn't save you to become morally neutral. He died in your stead to make you positively righteous. And the only way that happens is by the alien righteousness, the outside of you righteousness, the substitutionary righteousness of another. Who Jesus is. What He has done. Who Jesus is. And what He has done. In a verse that's probably quotable by every person in this room, let's think about it for just a moment. Because Paul told this same church, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. That's not one thing. That's two things. That's the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. That's all I'm going to talk to you about. Jesus Christ, who He is, heaven's favorite, and Him crucified. His Gospel labors to make us what God demands that we be. You cannot realize who Jesus is. And you cannot have any Holy Spirit wrought sensible awareness of what Jesus has done and be proud in His presence. When the Lord of glory stoops so low, who are we to suppose that we stand? That's why in the Philippian passage, Paul made his application first. Then he told him how to do it. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. That's the opposite of what Paul's opponents in Corinth were doing. But in the Gospel, there's an alternative. There and there alone. I mean the Gospel. That's not an empty word. That's a Bible word. In the Gospel, in who Jesus is, in what God has done for us in Him, we find that the remedy is not to avoid boasting, but to amplify it. 
When rightly grounded, rightly focused, boasting is a mighty, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting act of Christian worship. Instead of engaging his opponents on their playing field, using their criteria, their rules of engagement, verse 12, Paul reorients the ground rules and centers them, verse 17, in the Lord. Second point, diametrically opposed to our first self-centered boasting, let's consider our final point, Christ-centered boasting. I want to begin this final point by trying to show where I get the Christ for the emphasis Christ-centered boasting. You'll search in vain for that designation in the passage, but it's there. As I've mentioned, verse 17, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. The word Lord is where I get specifically the second person of the Trinity. Don't read your Bible generically. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is true. Keep reading your Bible and you will find out it was the second person of the triune Godhead who created the world. You're not to think generally about God. You're to think specifically as God reveals Himself in Scripture. And in this passage, I'm trying to show, I'll do in just a moment, the Lord in verse 17 is J-E-S-U-S. It's a quotation or an allusion or a partial citation from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, where the Lord speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the mighty man boast of his might, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, God said, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Well, if you could follow along, Jeremiah said, boast that you understand and know me. Paul said in verse 17, boast in the Lord. You do a quick survey of Paul's use of that phrase in First and Second Corinthians, not to mention the remainder of his New Testament epistles, and in context in Second Corinthians, he has Jesus in view. Paul Barnett in his commentary said it better than I could. Unlike Paul, these opponents commend themselves. Let them understand that it is the one whom the Lord Jesus commends who is approved. In context, verses 17 and 18, the Lord, quote, must refer in this verse to the Lord Jesus. How does the Lord Jesus command His servants? Clearly, by the concrete reality of a new covenant church who are a group of people focused on Christ. It boils down to this. You can't boast in yourself and in Jesus. You can boast in yourself or in Jesus. To be sure of one thing, please be sure of this, there is only one of those options that will glorify God and satisfy you. Instead of quenching the thirst of a narcissist, attention and praise only further depletes them. 
But the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ produces in us the right type of boasting from our hearts to our God. Notice how Paul obliterates his opponent's prideful foundation without even mentioning them again. He infers what their erroneous ways are, their self-centered boast, by pointing to his own Christ-saturated standard and his practice for boasting in Jesus. He doesn't engage them on their talking points. He redirects the conversation to the right focus, namely Jesus. So what does Christ-centered boasting look like? I've said he does two things. The right standard and examples of how he does it. One standard, I'll show you in the passage, I'll do my best anyway, and four ways Paul boasts in Jesus from the text. First, his standard. It's not what they had or used. Pardon me. The standard is mentioned in verse 13. It's a complex sentence. Every commentary I read said, man, this is a hard one to understand. Within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Well, I just want to zero in on the phrase from the New American Standard for just a moment. Measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure. I'm saying this is Paul's standard for boasting. It's his plumb line. It's his line of demarcation. It's the ground rules. The word translated sphere in the New American Standard, area of influence, ESV, sphere of service, NIV, measure of the rule, King James, is the Greek word that you know that you don't know you know. Kenanos. Canon. From which we would get our word canon in reference to the Bible, as in canon of Scripture. The canon, in this sense, is not a war device that goes boom and shoots out a metal ball. <laughs> not that kind of canon, but rather the lexical range of this word, the possible meanings of this word in their biblical context are thus. A rod or a bar, a measuring rule, a standard, a limit. Charles Hodge commenting on this word canon in verse 13 said, Paul means the rule or measuring line which God used in determining the apostles' gifts or sphere of ministry. What Hodge is saying is that Paul said, God, you get to set the rules. I operate by your orders. I salute you as king. I do as you say. That's the standard you have to start with to be able to boast in Christ. It's like the uh, story I've heard many times from many different pastors in many different contexts of the African-American musically gifted pastor who came up to the pulpit at the time of the sermon and then made his way over to the piano and just started playing a melody. And he played and played, and everybody's kind of wondering what's going on. Is this going to be a piano recital? And then after a while, he starts to hum. And then, uh, speeding up the story, he eventually starts to say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And then eventually, the whole congregation is kind of in a, a, a rhythmic sing-song response. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Then he comes to the pulpit. And he said, God, 
You've heard our answer. Now tell us what to do. Paul's standard was that God gets to draw the line. If you don't start there, if you don't say yes before He gives you orders, you can't boast in Christ. The canon, the standard, the rule for Paul was God. Put simply, while the self-centered super-apostles were measuring themselves by themselves, Paul was measuring himself with the same standard God was measuring with. What Paul's saying in verse 13 is that if his opponents have the wrong measuring line, they have the wrong foundation for all their boasting. Their starting point is faulty, therefore their finish line is going to be failure. They're starting with self instead of Christ. If you're playing baseball and you're the fastest person on the team, and you rip a, sin, a, a single to a left center, but it gets by the outfielder, and you run faster than anybody on the team all the way around the bases, but go the wrong direction, you still are out. If you run really fast the wrong way, you lose. You have to start the right way. And that's what Paul is saying. His standard is the canon, the sphere, which God appointed. So now let's look at how he boasts. I mentioned there are four ways. I'll just give them to you first and then touch them briefly. Verse 13, not beyond proper limits. Verse 15, not in others' labors. Verses 14 and 16, not in others' locations. And again in verse 16, not until the Lord is glorified in the saints and among the unreached nations. So first, not beyond proper limits, but rather limits that are set by the Lord. As we've seen in Paul's canon, his measuring line, the limits have been set by God, not by Paul. Paul's just an ambassador. He's an obedient subject. The Gospel had so shaped Paul's perspective that he was content to boast only in the Lord. So he says in verse 13 very clearly, we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned. Paul's boast was not Paul, but rather Christ, uh, pardon me, that Christ had commissioned him to Corinth with the glorious gospel, and therefore as an obedient subject to Christ, to Corinth Paul went. To boast in the Lord, verse 17, begins by obeying his orders. You can't say, I'm boasting in you, Jesus, and disobey what Jesus is telling you to do. So Paul is saying, here's a practical way my boast is in Christ, not myself, verse 12. It's by doing, verse 13. He says go, I obey. That's how we boast in Christ. Number two, not in others' labors, but in the Lord's work through Him. Verse 15, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. When God accomplishes something through you in the lives of other believers, you get joy. That's easy. God used me. Praise God. I get joy. Let's turn that dime in one click. 
when God accomplishes something through other believers, humble Christ-centered believers don't get jealous, they get joy. Instead of lamenting that we're not like others or taking credit for the work done by others, like this passage Paul's opponents were doing, we're to give God glory that His work is, march- His work is marching on however He so pleases. This is Paul's example in the text. It's not that we don't focus on the work the Lord has entrusted to us. Yes, let's keep our hand to the plow that the Lord's entrusted to us. Paul is not saying Let me say this again. Paul is not saying, don't focus on the work to be done. He is saying, make sure it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. These other people were serving. They were working. They were laboring. They were just not doing it unto Christ. It was verse 12, to themselves. Colossians 3 is the antidote. Whatever you do, Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. If you're doing the Lord's work, you can count on the Lord's grace to empower you. Because His grace is always in service to His glory. Theodore Menad put it well. Let us look unto Jesus and not what we are doing for Him too much occupied with our own work. We can forget our Master. It's possible to have the hands full and the heart empty. When occupied with our Master, we cannot forget our work. In the heart, we are filled with love. How then can the hands fail to be active in His service? So Paul's boast in Christ is second, not in the labors of others, but in the work that the Lord's entrusted to him. Third, verses 14-16, to Not in others' locations, but where the Lord has placed him. Whatever limits God had assigned to Paul, we're totally fine with Paul. God says go, Paul goes. In fact, instead of going toward Achaia, where Corinth is located, Paul intended, as you may remember from Acts 16, to go to Asia. But there he received his Macedonian vision, Acts 16, and was redirected toward the west, eventually going to Corinth. So Paul literally went to Corinth because he was obeying Jesus who sent him that way instead of the way he had intended to go. What God apportioned to Paul, Paul was content to embrace. Paul's opponents were, on the other hand, working in the field that God never apportioned to them. Isn't it strange? Now is Paul just territorial? Like jealous? The jealous pastor? Like, oh man... There's another bigger, better church around the corner. Is that what he's upset about? The people didn't go around the corner. They came into the auditorium. They came into the church that Jesus birthed as Paul proclaimed the Gospel of Jesus. Paul's opponents were working in the field that God had used Paul to plow as a frontier missionary in Corinth where the gospel had not yet permeated until Paul came. But Paul didn't just bring the gospel in, parachute out of his plane, give him the gospel, and get out as quick as possible. He stayed there tending the garden. He pastored this church for 18 months. If you look at the timeline of the book of Acts and put all the data we have together, it was probably a year and a half to 18 months. 
That is 18 months. Paul is accusing them of encroaching on the labors of others normally upon himself. So in verse 13 he says, we came even as far as you. Verse 14, we didn't overextend ourselves as if we did not reach to you. We were the first to come to you in the Gospel of Christ. Paul was working within the limits that God had set for him in the location that God had assigned to him. He was saying yes to God, doing God's work, God's way, by God's power. That's how he boasted in Christ. And God gave the increase. Amy Carmichael talked about going where the Lord's assigned us to go. She was a missionary for 50 years in India. And she referred to going where the Lord has assigned us all to go. All different assignments for different people. And she asked this penetrating question. Before he tells you where he wants you, are you already resigned to glorify God in what she called your ministry of place? Is there anywhere off limits for you? Or are you only jealous of like these super apostles following up on somebody else's work and, and, and redirecting the path your way? Carmichael says, God has given you a ministry of place. For many of us, sphere, sovereignty, you and Jesus, that's an assignment. You and your household, that's an assignment. You and your local church, that's an assignment. And then beyond that, your work, leisure, neighborhood, relationships, all those things, that's where God's put you. He sovereignly, according to Acts 17, decided when you would be born and where you would be born. He has determined your appointed time and the boundary of your habitation. God's given you a place and He's given you a ministry and these other apostles, so-called apostles who came into Corinth were operating out of bounds. Doing their work their way instead of Christ's work His way. But do you see that Paul was unwilling to carry out his good God-given desire to keep going with the Gospel to other places until Corinth was healthy? This is the last way he boasted in Christ. He boasted in Christ by being unwilling to take the Gospel to new territory. The unreached peoples of the world who desperately needed Jesus. They were headed for a Christless eternity if they didn't hear this Gospel. This is literally life and death. Eternity hangs in the balance. And Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, was unwilling to go to Spain until Corinth was healthy. This is how he boasted in Jesus. It's verse 16. The end of 15 says, not in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. So putting 15 and 16 together, as your faith grows, enlarged by you, most think that means sent out by you, like you become the, the, the Achaean Antioch base that's sending out faithful gospel workers like Antioch had sent out Paul and the others who eventually made it to Corinth. Corinth had to become healthy to send them out further. As your faith go, grows, enlarged by you, we go preach the gospel to regions beyond you. But I'm not going there if you're going to die in the process. This is how he boasts in Christ. This is amazing. This man, was, he lived his life like his hair was on fire for Jesus. 
He stood before kings. He stood before emperors. He stood before common men. He had been beaten and run out of cities and lowered down in a wall, out of a wall in a basket at nighttime because a mob wanted to kill him. People were threatening to drag him into coliseums and have live wild animals rip him to shreds. This man was fearless. He wanted to go where no one had gone for the sake of Christ, to preach the gospel as the power of God, to see Jesus save people and collect them into local churches because Jesus was worthy of their praise. But he was not willing to do it if the people that belonged to Jesus were going to fall off the edge of the earth and defect on the faith. Why go there if you're going to die here? It appears that Paul wanted the Corinthian church to experience similar joys as the church in Antioch, to be a congregation that had a part in sending Paul to the unreached peoples of the world. That's what enlarged even more by you, I believe, means in verse 15b. He wanted the Corinthians' faith to grow. Verse 15, you, you being established in the faith so that they could enlarge Paul's ministry to other unreached regions. Here's the principle. Here's the pattern. And I wonder if you got a taste of it. If we focus on depth, God will take care of breadth. If we focus on going deep with Jesus and rising high in our boast in Him, God will see to it that the Gospel gets out or has been put by many. A church's kingdom impact is not to be measured by their seating capacity, but by their sending capacity. You're only going to reproduce what you are. Paul couldn't abandon the Corinthian church and go on beyond them to start new gospel work until the Corinthians were restored to spiritual health. Like a parent with a terminally ill child, would, would any loving parent say, oh well, we'll just have more? You may have others, but you'll pour your heart and soul into praying and working and laboring and doing anything you can under the sun to help aid that ailing child. Simeon wrote about this passage. However numerous Paul's converts may be, he and no other faithful minister will be satisfied unless those converts make their profiting appear. Every believer is enjoined to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is in that way alone that he can promote the honor of God or advance in his own happiness. And then he gives this great illustration. A mother, however rejoicing over her infant child, would soon cease to rejoice over that very child if she saw no advancement in his stature. So, can no faithful minister find pleasure in his converts if he see them not gradually advancing in the divine life, growing up toward the measure of the full stature of Christ? How could Paul go there if you shrivel up and die here? He longed to take the Gospel to Spain. He never made it. He got his head cut off in Rome on his way. He never made it where he wanted to go. But he would not do it until the church at Corinth had made a full return in their hearts to Jesus. Well, we close with verse 17 and 18. The Christ-centered boasting but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord 
For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Paul's summing up what he's just said. He's giving it as a carte blanche application to every Christian in all places, in all times. As I've mentioned, this is a citation from Jeremiah chapter 9, where the center of God's words through Jeremiah are motivated not by what pleases man, but by what pleases God. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. It's one of the most gospel-saturated two verses anywhere contained in the entire Bible. If God had said in that verse, don't boast in your wisdom, don't boast in your strength, don't boast in your riches, boast about this, I'm a God of justice. It would have been the most devastating passage in the Bible. But God gives a threefold, full-ranging repertoire, a panorama of all of His gospel love in three phrases. I am a God who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. And God says, boast in me. In Jeremiah, Paul picks it up in verse 17. The verse drips, as I said, with offings of the glory of God and the gospel of Christ. I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness. That's the Old Testament word, hesed. It's God's covenant love, His self-sacrificial, unilateral, based on one party alone, what God does by Himself, for Himself, independent of our effort, in spite of our effort, God delights in loving kindness. This same God doesn't compromise His character to love you. The biggest problem in the universe, as we've said many times around here, is how could God remain God and love somebody as sinful as me? Doesn't it diminish His glory? Doesn't it compromise His character? How can He be just? Because, as Romans says, He's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the righteousness in Jeremiah 9 in which God delights. What God accomplished for us at Calvary in Christ is the delight of God's heart. And His people boast with Him in His Son as a result of what Psalm 85 says in one of the most beautiful verses I've ever read. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Where did that happen? At the cross of Jesus, where the only righteous God who cannot tolerate prideful sinners like you and me, whose first words were, I, me, and mine. And we just got more sophisticated in our sinfulness and bigger in our vocabulary and we can mask our pride to our fellow man better, but God sees our heart. How can that righteous God love me? Because righteousness and God's peace have kissed one another at Calvary. God is reconciled to have me as His child if I would meet Him at the altar of His Son. So the application, I believe, is obvious. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. How can you do that? Turn from self to Jesus. 
Those are the two diametrically opposed expressions in this passage. Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of Thee. Yet He found me. I beheld Him. Bleeding on the accursed tree, and my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of Thee. Day by day, His tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of Thee. Higher than the highest heaven. Deeper than the deepest sea. Lord, Thy love at last hath conquered. None of self and all of Thee. The Gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection, did that work for you to set you free primarily from you so that you could join God in delighting in God. That's the good news of the Gospel. The salary package of the Gospel, the total, the sum total of the benefits of the cross of Christ are that you get God. Second, beware of any deviation from Christ. I'm sure these apostles didn't come in with their big briefcases and power suits saying, I want to give you a five-part presentation on why you should not follow Jesus. Satan's more subtle than that, isn't he? Anything that shifts your focus away from Christ, can you hear this? Is to you a weight or a sin that ought to be put off in the race of your life in keeping your eyes on Jesus. No subtle deviations from Christ. Or as Paul will say at the beginning of the next chapter, don't be seduced like Eve was away from simple, pure devotion to Jesus. Number three, do you desire that the two billion people who are alive today on planet earth who've never heard the gospel. I'm not talking about anybody in uptown. I'm not talking about anybody in the city of Memphis. I'm talking about people in Southeast Asia, North Africa, the Middle East. Do you desire that the two billion people who've never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus, they're going to die and go to a Christless hell as I've been talking one per second has perished into a Christless eternity. Do you desire that they, that they get the Gospel? If you don't, you've got a gigantic question mark hanging over your salvation. Do you desire that they get the Gospel? How are you going to do it? Isn't this passage amazing? One of the best ways that you and I can get the Gospel to them is for this local church to repent of our pride. Paul wasn't going to leave Corinth and go to Spain until Corinth was healthy. When they got rid of their pride, he could go to a new place. Isn't it amazing that one of the greatest missionary, evangelistic, gospel-propagating activities that any believer can do is be a faithful, humble follower of Christ in context with a local church? You want to get the gospel there? Prove it right here. Finally, I've been wanting to get to this so bad the whole time. And I'm going to quit right now. But I saved it for last on purpose. Glory in Jesus. Boast in Jesus. As I said, you worship your way into sin. You've got to worship your way out. Holiness is not being morally neutral, free of sin. 
One half of the gospel is that Jesus died for your sin. The other half is so that he might impute to you his righteousness. Glory in Christ. Boast in Jesus. What Thomas Chalmers was talking about in his expulsive power of a new affection. Turn your heart to God in Christ. This is what I mean. Apply God's Word to your life to the max. Stop tiptoeing around verses. Read them. Pray them. Believe them. Obey them. Apply God's Word to your life to the max. It's easy to see chinks in other people's armor and cracks in other people's lives. Seek to glory in Christ at every opportunity in your own heart. As an exercise of the body strengthens our physical muscles, so boasting in Jesus enlarges your soul. Anytime you ever, therefore, see a work of the grace of God in your life, let it be a launching pad for you to give Him glory. Anytime you're ever made sensible of His love for you, boast in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, anytime your heart is ever drawn out to the bliss of the age to come or the endless delights that Jesus has purchased for you in His death and resurrection, tune your heart to sing His praise. Boast in the Lord and then boast again. And when you're granted new sights of the mountain range, of the grandeur, of the character, of the incomprehensible God. Focus your gaze on one of those majestic peaks and do a deep dive into one of the attributes of God until your own soul is experiencing the waft of the aroma of the fragrance of Jesus. A Spirit-filled moment of fellowship with any other believer ought to catapult you instantly into the third heaven of boasting in the Lord. A reminder of your standing that you're counted righteous in Christ forever. The verdict is already in. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you less and there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you more. The definition of your acceptance before God now and forever is the man seated at God's right hand. Boast in Jesus. There, you'll find the grace of God. And there, you will be somebody who obeys verse 17, who boasts in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I love You and I love these precious people. And I thank You that that's just a faint reflection of Your love for Yourself and for Your people. And oh, how I pray that we would be the, that we would be the people who by the Spirit's work throw ourselves at the foot of the cross. That You put to death pride in us. But not just by removing that. But by replacing it with a superior delight in Jesus. Cause us to boast in the Lord. For they and they alone are the ones that You say You commend and You approve. Oh, God, do it in Jesus' name. Amen.